Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco Radio. And yes, that's our official name now. This week, Dominic Moll, director of crime thriller The Night of the Twelve, which won six Cesar Awards. What drew me to that was first that the way that the author describes how a non-resolved case, what effect it has on the investigator, what kind of frustration or anger or deception or whatever it creates. So that was what interested me first. Plus, confusion about the daylight saving time in Lebanon. And this week, almost as if daring to wonder how much more screwed up things could get, Lebanon, all of 32 kilometers wide at its narrowest point, briefly had two time zones. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Canada, where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has appointed a special rapporteur to investigate allegations that China interfered in recent Canadian elections. Monaco's correspondent in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, has been following the story and he sent us this report. Well, after nearly three years of being in prison in China, the two Michaels are now safely back in Canada. On the 24th of September 2021, two Canadian men, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, known in Canada simply as the two Michaels, returned to Canada after nearly three years in prison in China. Their return, in the company of Canada's then ambassador to Beijing, received blanket coverage in the Canadian press, which had followed the two men's plight throughout the years of their imprisonment. Their incarceration was widely seen as retaliation by China for the arrest in 2018 in Vancouver of the Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou at the request of the United States. So, when a news report published last week alleged that a sitting member of parliament had meddled in the affair by allegedly urging China's consul general in Toronto to delay the release of the two Michaels, much of the country was stunned. Let me be clear. What has been reported is false, and I will defend myself against these absolutely untrue claims. But let me assure you, as a parliamentarian and as a person, I have never, and I will never, and would never advocate or support the violation of the basic human rights of any Canadian of anyone, anywhere, period. In that emotional speech to Parliament, Han Dong announced his resignation from the governing Liberal Party, while the claims, which he denies, are investigated. To my wife, Sophie, and my kids, I love you. I thank you for all the support and love you give me. The truth will protect us. Our honor and our family will get through this together. Sorry about that. Thank you, Speaker. <laughs> this is the latest allegation in a series of claims reported in Canada over the past few months that allege a deep and concerted effort by China to interfere in Canada's affairs, from claims of election meddling in the federal elections of 2019 and 2021 to allegations even of interference in provincial and even mayoral elections. 
Besma Mamani is a professor of international politics at Canada's University of Waterloo, and she explains how the allegations first came to light. Well, we've had a, a whistleblower that has come out, and the whistleblower works for our CSIS, which is our central quasi-intelligence agency, if you will, to give you sort of an American example, although it doesn't have nearly the same amount of scope and breadth as the CIA would, but our intelligence arm. Now, the whistleblower is not saying anything new. In fact, if you looked at CSIS reports from several years, they noted that there is absolutely Chinese interference in our domestic politics that they are supporting uh, certain candidates over other candidates, not always one political party or the other, but it seems as though many of the candidates they supported were, uh, I'd say, overwhelmingly from the Liberal Party. And I don't think it's because there's any special love for Trudeau. It's just they work to stop the rise of some conservative candidates who were absolutely going to be far more hawkish on China. And so what they've done is... There's allegations that they interfered by boosting uh, certain candidates over others. Now, it's important to note that our current uh, political party in power does not have a majority. It has a minority. So it's not clear that this would have made a difference to the overall result. It might have changed the dynamics by up to, say, nine seats. That's not nothing, but it, it didn't make it wouldn't have made a qualitative difference to the final outcome. That's not to discount the severity of the accusations because it really does erode trust in our democratic process. Thank you so much. Like, I I literally want to hug every single person in this room. Another recent allegation involves the election of Ken Sim as mayor of Vancouver last October, after it was reported that China's consul general in the city had stated a desire to boost certain candidates, including perhaps Ken Sim himself, who's the first person of Chinese heritage to be elected to lead a city that has one of the largest, oldest and most diverse Chinese populations in the entire country. It's an allegation Ken Sim has denied. So he said that this is really unfortunate in that it seems to just cast a shadow over everyone who's Chinese uh, with no real clear uh, evidence of what actually happened and who was influenced by it. Francis Bueller is a journalist who's covered city politics in Vancouver for many years. There's a diversity of views you're seeing out there because there are some people from the Chinese community, very anti-mainland China, who have said, yes, there are things going on and China is trying to control things and we know about what's happening in our community. You do hear that, but then you hear other people saying, but this is smearing everyone, you know, and these allegations are very broad and vague and general and it's sort of throwing every Chinese person in Vancouver under the bus. Yes. I very much share the concerns uh, of Canadians around interference from uh, from uh, the Chinese governments or other foreign governments. Pressure has grown on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to launch a full public inquiry into the allegations, which he has so far resisted, opting instead to appoint Canada's well-respected former Governor-General, David Johnston, to investigate the claims in their entirety. And despite the criticism his political opponents have levied at him for his apparent hesitation in investigating the claims, it's a stance that isn't entirely unjustified, according to Herschel Ezrin, who served as a Canadian diplomat under a previous Conservative government. 
you run a public inquiry, A, you don't know where it's going to lead. I mean, just talking about it from a government point of view. And secondly, that's no way to practice diplomacy because all of a sudden you're letting anybody with any different kind of attempt, um, um, axe to grind, to go ahead and, and, and criticize. Uh, so I would say that was the rationale for why Mr. Trudeau didn't do it. Uh, whether he was right or wrong or whether he should have moved more quickly to establish a special rapporteur, which he's done with a former governor general who is eminently qualified to review this and to decide even if there should be a public inquiry about it. I think the real argument will be ultimately, was Mr. Trudeau late in establishing the system that he's finally gotten to? So, is the work of the special rapporteur into alleged Chinese interference in Canada's domestic affairs gets underway? For Besma Momani, the sheer breadth of the claims has already started a re-evaluation for many Canadians of the security of their elections. I think most sensible people want to shine light on this. They want to have as much investigation into what happened so that we can improve our systems. I think the majority of Canadians don't believe that uh, the elections were illegitimate in any way, but they do want to strengthen our defenses to ensure that this doesn't happen or, or at least try to ameliorate this. I don't think you're going to completely stop these kinds of influence campaigns. Canada is one of the most stable democracies in the world, but that didn't happen by accident and it will not continue without effort. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis. And for the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, we head to Lebanon. Lebanese citizens were left hanging this week after an indecision on daylight saving time. Andrew Muller explains and sets forth his argument for leaving the hands of time alone. Lebanon is an almost proverbially bewildering country. Its governance is a shambles, its politics volatile, its infrastructure barely functional, its economy an agglomeration of often ingeniously improvised responses to its general chaos. And this week, almost as if daring to wonder how much more screwed up things could get, Lebanon, all of 32 kilometers wide at its narrowest point, briefly had two time zones. We will get into that shortly, but first, this broadcaster feels obliged to insert a paragraph in defence of a country which, despite all the aforelisted, is a splendid place to visit. Lebanon is beautiful, the food is fantastic, the wine superlative, the people hilarious. If you haven't been, you should go, and if you have, you should go again, especially now that everyone has agreed, if they can agree on nothing else, what time it actually is. What happened was this. Lebanon had been scheduled as usual to move its clocks forward an hour early Sunday morning in order to embrace daylight saving time, as many European or near European countries generally do on or around the last weekend in March. However, this year the onset of daylight saving more or less coincided with the beginning of Ramadan, an interregnum many Muslims observe by fasting from sunup to sundown. Lebanon's caretaker Prime Minister Najib Makati decided to postpone daylight saving for a month so that he and his fellow Muslims would spend one hour less every day being hungry. 
He seems to have been prompted by the Speaker of Parliament, Nabi Berry, an 85-year-old former militia commander who has, to put it charitably, probably served his country long enough. Some backing music to distinguish a footnote here would be good. It should be conceded that there is an argument for punting daylight saving to the other side of Ramadan. Lebanon's roads are alarming at the best of times. Not for nothing is the car horn otherwise known as the Lebanese brake pedal. The traffic becomes much the more terrifying when many of Lebanon's famously frolicsome motorists haven't eaten all day and are hastening home for dinner occasionally in the personal experience of this correspondent with a whimpering guest adopting the brace position in the passenger seat. <laughs> a recap of Lebanon's curious political settlement is necessary if we could now have some necessary recap backing music. When Lebanon, as we now understand it, gained its independence from France in the 1940s, steps were taken which it was hoped would deter Lebanon's rich mix of religious communities – the country recognises 18 of such officially – from conflict. The most cursory survey of Lebanon's history will demonstrate that these steps may not have been thought all the way through. A convention nevertheless holds that, at any given moment, Lebanon's Prime Minister must be a Sunni Muslim, its President a Maronite Christian, the Speaker of Parliament a Shia Muslim. At the moment, due to an ongoing political crisis which would require several more of these explainers to put the faintest scratch on the surface, while Lebanon does have its Sunni Prime Minister and Shia Speaker, the Christian President's chair is empty, as among the very long list of subjects upon which Lebanon's parliamentarians refuse to get together is who should succeed the previous President, Michael Aoun, whose term concluded last October. Anyway, Prime Minister McCarthy does not seem to have asked around much before announcing his abrupt postponement of daylight saving. While all public institutions were obliged to go along with it – McCarthy is, after all, in charge more or less – many private institutions and businesses, especially those run by Christians, decided that they would stick to the original kickoff. The results were roughly what might be readily imagined, i.e. Lebanon being plunged into yet greater havoc, an accomplishment akin to making water wetter. We were at a house party last night and looked at our phones. One showed the clock as 1.20 a.m. and the other was 2.20 a.m. It was like, what is happening? We wondered if it was the alcohol. No, is it the alcohol or no? Judging by social media, many Lebanese responded with the droll yet surreal sense of humour they have had to develop over the years, but the irritation and concerns about inflammation of sectarian tensions were real. They create problems to deepen the division between Muslims and Christians because those in power are the ones benefiting from the people's dispute. So earlier this week, McCarthy took the hint and announced that Lebanon would, after all, put the clocks ahead at midnight Wednesday, and we hope our Lebanese listeners are already making the most of their longer evenings. While many of Lebanon's many problems are specific to Lebanon, rancor over daylight saving is actually pretty widespread. The United States is still toying with passing the Sunshine Protection Act, which would adopt daylight saving permanently, and the EU has wrangled for some years with the notion of fixed time zones, but is having difficulty deciding where the zones should be and what time they should be fixed to. 
This week did see Greenland take the plunge and move its clocks forward for the last time. It will henceforth observe daylight saving permanently, thus delaying December sunset over Nuuk until as late as half past three in the afternoon. Yay. Yay. Wow. What a result. Here in the UK, meanwhile, one dauntless voice of reason, i.e. the foreign desk explainer on Monocle Radio, has spent this first week of deliverance from a long, gloomy winter, insisting that life in the UK would be vastly improved by moving the clocks permanently forward two hours at least. Apologies to any vitamin D-starved Scottish goat herds who may be listening, but greatest good for the greatest number, etc. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And you're listening to the curator on Monocle Radio, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with Laura Kramer. She speaks with Dominic Moll, director of crime thriller The Night of the Twelve, which won six Cesar Awards, France's top film honors, including the Best Picture Trophy. I was curious to read that book because I had heard that the author, Pauline Guénard, had spent one year with the crime squad in, in Versailles and really she went there every day and had observed them. And so the book is the... she's describing all kinds of different things that she has observed and witnessed, you know, on crime scenes, on uh, interrogation of suspects and on the everyday work and everyday life of the police officers and how that work affects them and affects also their personal life. It was a really well-researched book on that subject and it's not that often that you have an insider's point of view of the police world. So I was curious to read the book uh, just for that. But then when I came across the description of that particular investigation that that is being dealt with in the, in the film, and which is the last investigation she's talking about in the book, so the last 50 pages out of 500, I felt what interested, what drew me to that was first that the way that the author described how the main investigator gets obsessed with that particular case and the more so because he can't resolve it. And so she describes how a non-resolved case, what effect it has on the investigator, what kind of frustration or anger or deception or whatever it creates. So that, that, that was what interested me first. And then when we started working on the screenplay with my co-writer Gilles Marchand, we felt that because it was a femicide and the murder of a young woman, and because the crime squad is is still an almost exclusively male uh, world, we felt that it was interesting to question how those men who work on the violence of other men, how that affects them and how they deal with that and how it questions their own masculinity. So the theme or the topic of violence of men towards women became one of the of the main topics of our screenplay and the film. We're based in the UK, although we're an international station, and here we've had a lot of stories of misogyny within the police force and how that impacts whether it's investigations or indeed crimes that they sometimes commit as well. So we thought it's really interesting timing to put this out. What were some of the challenges that you faced as you were making the film? In regard to that? In regard to that aspect. Well, I must say that, I mean, 
be it in the book or when I spent, I only spent one week with a crime squad in, in Grenoble, but it still allowed me to see a certain number of things. I didn't witness, and the book doesn't talk about it, although it is written by a woman, misogynic behavior. I mean, specific misogynic behavior. I mean, you can have silly or stupid misogynist remarks when they make jokes among themselves, but never never towards you know a victim or or parents of a victim but then i think that the crime squad in in france has a kind of special status i mean they're a bit considered as uh intellectuals which they are not but uh, but they are or as more involved <laughs> as the basic uh police officer i didn't witness it but i know that it exists and and also i just read a book written by a, a woman journalist who talks about a case of a serial rapist who raped women for over 30 years in the north of France until he got caught, although he was also using always using the same method. And, and she's writing the book from the victim's perspective and not at all from the, I mean, it's not a biopic about the rapist. And it's really frightening to see how, because often it was young girls, teenage girls from poor families, and how no one believes them, and especially not the police. And sometimes, even if it was women police officers who put what they said in doubt and thought, okay, you probably had an exam in school and didn't want to go to school, and so you made that up. And it's really horrifying. So it started in the 80s, and you feel that it's getting a bit better now. I mean, that the the Me Too movement also has changed things and how to consider what women say when they say that they have been raped, but there's clearly still a lot of work to do. We were interested in, with my co-writer Gilles, was how, and in, in the evolution of the character of Johan, the, the, the main investigator, is how he becomes aware of that and how, be it the fact that when a woman uh, who is a victim and who when you learn that she had multiple sexual relationships that quickly the the idea arises that she's been looking for it or that she's partly responsible for it and things like that things that are not specifically linked to the police but uh, i mean i think everybody does it i mean including women sometimes who might think the same the same thing and that there's still a problem on how to consider a woman's uh, sexuality when it's not, you know, uh, in the uh, norms of what it should be. This is what we wanted to to describe in in the evolution of of Johan and also the fact that he evolves in a all men's world. I mean, it's, it's not by accident that the first time he confides in someone about his doubts and his inner feelings is when he's facing the judge who is a woman. And because this is something that you feel quite strongly in the book and also during the week that I was with the crime squad is that men among themselves, they don't talk. I mean, they make jokes, which doesn't mean that all the stuff that they witness doesn't affect them but they don't want to show weakness. And so they kind of eats them up from the inside because they don't talk about it. And, and I think that's uh, that was quite obvious. I mean, there are also psychologists which they could 
go and, and see and talk to and it's anonymous and, and it's a professional secret, etc. But still, you feel that it's a problem for them to do that because, uh, you know, people might hear about it and say, okay, he's starting to uh, make depression or to become weak or whatever. What I like about the evolution of Johan is that when he's in, in the second part of the film, when he's in touch with those women, and even in the first part, when he's with the, the friend of the best friend of the, the victim, you feel that he, it makes his brain work and he starts to ask himself questions and to listen. And I think that is probably one of the important things, you know, that Me Too has triggered off. And uh, even if, again, there's still a lot of progress to do, but that some men, and I include myself, start to at least to listen and at least to ask themselves questions. In France, you have this uh, saying, I mean, in relation to Me Too, where you say, Okay, Me Too was great because it has liberated the speech of women. I mean, allows them to speak up. And I heard a, a feminist philosopher on the radio once and she said, it's okay, very good. But that's not, I mean, the most important thing is not to allow women to speak up, but is that they are being listened to and that this, the listening is just as important as the speaking up because if they speak up and nobody listens. <laughs> it's kind of uh, pointless. And I felt that made a lot of sense. I wanted to ask, many of your films have been very critically acclaimed and won awards at prestigious festivals and shown in Cannes and everywhere. Indeed, this project, which so far has won six trophies at the César Awards. And I wondered how you handle the pressure of living up to expectations for future projects with this kind of behind you. I think it's easier now than it was when I did uh, with a friend like Harry more than 20 years ago, which was also very successful and won awards. And I think I put after that, I put myself a lot of pressure and I was like, oh, my God, I, uh, I have to do something even better. And, 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 and of course, uh, that is not a good thing to to do and I feel that now being a bit older and wiser, maybe <laughs> the, the pressure is not as strong. I know that maybe the next film will not be critically acclaimed and but it's not and, and if it's not, it's not a catastrophe. And the, the the important thing is to continue to try to do films the best in the best possible way and trying to put as much work as it in, in possible. But of, of, of course, you have no guarantee of, you know, of the outcome because there's no recipe and it's always mysterious and uh, why a film will suddenly appeal to audiences or, or not. Sometimes it's also just a question of timing. I think, I mean, at least in France, the timing, I mean, we didn't plan it, but it was uh, the fact that this particular topic is dealt with in, in the film contributed to the fact that it appealed to a lot of viewers. And so, but you can, you can never predict it. So I, I try to now, I, I think I'm able to put the pressure aside a little. Well, thank you so much. It's fantastic. And I'm sure your next project will do just as well. <laughs> we'll see. And for the entrepreneurs, Monaco's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck joined the show to introduce his interview with Mark Dixon, the founder and chief executive of IWG. They discuss hybrid working and why the office will never go out of style, even if commuting does. Well, it began with me 
long, long time ago. You know, I'd started up and I'd built up and sold already eight businesses. And I was in my late 30s. I moved to Brussels and I was doing apartments for secretaries because no one had thought of that. It was quite a successful business. And I thought about getting my first office. And it was a nightmare. You know, totally uncustomer friendly. They wondered who this oik was from the UK over in Brussels um, looking for space. I just, just, there must be a better way. Started researching it, then launched it in Brussels in 89. It was a, an idea that sort of grew and grew much, much more in this digital age that we're in today. How quickly did you realize you were onto something? I knew after six months that it was something much, much bigger. My original business plan was to do all the European capitals. It was the beginning of the European Union, and I thought there would be people that wanted to be in each of the capitals and somehow a network of places that were reliable, easy to use, there'd be a market for it. After six months, I realized that this was a huge thing and could be a global thing. So I ripped up the plan and and made a much, much bigger plan that I'm still doing today. I mean, we're now on just coming up to 4,000 buildings in 120 countries, um, but we're, we're nowhere near done. I mean, we're still at the beginning, unfortunately. Now, your business is dependent on how people want to work, and we're, we're going to see some of those changes in a moment when we talk about it. But can I just take you back maybe six, seven years ago when a lot of... Uh, potential rivals came onto the market looking at your business and lots of them have, have been and gone and some of the, the big companies who got rather daft valuations at the time you carried on doing your thing was there a moment there when you thought oh, hold on this is this is this is my world <laughs> who's parking their tank I think it was I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a sort of fundamental business person I'm not smart enough to do very sophisticated models and so on so I, I look at the basics so I did have a moment where I was scratching my head saying if I miss something you have to check you know it's a competitive market and it's important you check your own model you look at other people you check your own and just make sure you haven't missed anything as it happened I hadn't missed something but could have been I mean but it's been a fantastic thing the investment of others into the market has helped build the industry we have today. I'd never imagined that you could have TV programs made of our industry, but that's what happened. So look, in building a, a totally new way of people working in the future, that, you know, there's people that are gonna not get it right, and there's people that can get it right. When more competitors came along, was, I guess one thing people had thought was, okay, is there a kind of, a, a younger, cooler generation of people who now want these serviced offices and these these flexible office spaces, whereas in the past, you said maybe it was, you know somebody who was running a, a a more traditional business wanted a, a, an office in a city a couple of days because they were working in that city. Did that force you to look at your portfolio and think, aesthetically at least, okay, maybe maybe we need to consider there there is a new generation coming along who will want to work with well, us. We you know people think of us as having one brand which is Regis our biggest brand but we also have a brand called Spaces we have HQ we have 12 brands in total so we do everything from you know workshops and creative studios all the way up to 
you know, like your equivalent of Four Seasons with our signature brand. So we have those cool brands. So we fully believed that there was a market for cool, um, well-designed space that would appeal to a different generation of workers, in particular in, in the tech and creative industries. Our spaces brand absolutely caters to that marketplace. Obviously, we know what happened to every business in the world during the pandemic, but we pop out the other side of that. And there's been this remarkable transformation in how many companies want to work. Companies that would never have considered it pre-pandemic are saying they want to offer flexible working and that they're taking on space with companies such as yourself so that people can work in the suburbs, they can work closer to home, they can not always come into the main office to do their work. Has it surprised you the pace of that change and the permanence of it after the pandemic? I mean the pace has surprised me. The permanence I always believed in. Tech changes everything and it's going to change real estate and it is. So it's the fact that you can work from anywhere that enabled this grand experiment that occurred during COVID where companies overnight almost changed the way that they organised themselves, allowed people to work from home remotely Productivity actually did not go down. In many companies, it went up. And people realized for the first time that they could run effective companies without having everyone come into central offices. We'll open up close to a 1,000 buildings this year because the demand is so great for companies wanting to provide facilities on a platform near to where people live. You know, that convenience. They believe they will get better people, and they do and they have more retention. You know, overall, much better for the planet. And by the way, it's half the price. So, you know, we're in a difficult economy, probably in 23, maybe into 24. Companies are looking where to save costs. And this is one where you can actually make your people happy and at the same time cut costs. So every CFO in the land is thinking, this is, a, this is, this is attractive. I remember, again, post-pandemic, lots of people saying for your industry, the opportunities would be to tilt the model a bit and go into the suburbs. That's where people were going to want to be. Is that your, your feeling? Always has been. So we've, we've been in the suburbs for a long, long time. You know, we, we like to do small towns, villages. 80% of our centres are in small towns and cities. We, we have a lot in the cities, but the majority close to where people live in the suburbs and where people commute from the growth we're seeing today is is all over countries you know, the united states is showing the highest growth and the highest movement towards hybrid and flexible working because american companies just move quicker good idea saves us money better for people and by the way better for the planet we're, let's do it what's stopping us so they're getting out of fixed leases in central locations and moving to platform working near to where people live. So a lot of our growth, about 90% of our growth is in the suburbs and, and, and very rural locations. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. 
It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. And I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And our highlight from the show I host, The Stack. This time I speak with photographer and designer Robert Spangle about his book, Afghan Style, a fashion study of the Afghan man. I guess it depends sort of how long you'd go back in my own life. I think my first comprehension of the country was probably nine years old, the very famous Steve McCurry Afghan girl photo, but in a much broader sense, uh, the events of September 11th in 2001, I was uh, 12 or 13 at a time, and that kind of brought Afghanistan to the forefront of world news where it would stay up until this day. The first time I went to Afghanistan was as a Marine in 2009, and then again in 2010, I left the Marine Corps in... 2011, and I went very quickly into fashion and very far away from from conflict and from Afghanistan. But as time went on, and I kind of studied fashion, so to speak, more and more, um, especially personal style around the world, the years were going by, but Afghanistan was, its hold on me was kind of growing disproportionately. I was thinking about the country all the time. So I think around 2020, not the best time to make plans, but around 2020, very beginning of the year, I decided I wanted to go back and see if I could do a sort of a style study of the country. Um, and that was was very much personal interest because I had this this personal relationship to the country that was quite conflicted and um, also very much from a, from a fashion perspective. Which I find quite... I love because the book it doesn't have this kind of patronizing attitude that many people have towards the country. I know it's been, I mean, so many things have happened in the country, very sad stories even more recently. But this is lovely. It looks like you're empowering people there without saying, oh, look at those people, how exotic they are, if you know what I mean. So, I mean, you are generally, you are generally saying that they are stylish because they are. I've, I'm so impressed about it. And, you know, you've worked with fashion. You are a tailor yourself. Is this really, when you saw the man in the times you've been to Afghanistan, you said, oh, my God, this is you know, this is like Parisian levels, as you mentioned, or even higher, perhaps. Yeah, and I can't, I can't stress enough that I was really, I was really shocked. I did, this wasn't something I remembered from my deployments there as a Marine. I wasn't really looking for, you know, fashion or style, and I didn't really have an eye for it. But I was really surprised. And, you know, the first trip, I planned to spend about a month and a half there, because I thought it was going to be really hard going to find anything that was worth photographing and my interest was really in a place photographing a place that was culturally distinct and extremely isolated to find sort of what is style outside of the industry of fashion and just the first few days I really realized no 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 these are incredibly prideful self-possessed men um, who really really have a distinct sense of what it is to be Afghan what it is to be from whichever specific tribe they're from And 
you know, within, within just a few days, I really, I came to the conclusion that, you know, the average Afghan is much more stylish than the average Westerner. And it really comes down to just how they, how they care for themselves and how they carry themselves. And that revelation of just how much pride these guys have and how self-possessed they are from, you know, from the age of barely being able to walk to guys who look like they're 80 or 90. That was really, that was shocking to me. It wasn't what I expected of the country and it wasn't what I expected of a, a place that is so beset upon by, you know, decades of decades of conflict and poverty. Is there something about the stare? It was very interesting you mentioned there in the book because, of course, the clothes are amazing and I want to ask you more specifically about the clothes, but do you think that that attitude, like they literally look into your eyes, do you think that helps when it comes to style and the way you present yourself as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, and that's something, that interpersonal reaction, which you, you see in quite a lot of the images, is really rare. I've never seen that in another country where people would just turn to you with like total confidence and not put on a kind of like a practiced smile or try to present themselves in a certain way or try to present a certain attitude. It's just very, very self-assured. And you talk to a few of these guys and you really got the impression that they believed that you had come from, you know, whatever far flung country you're from 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 miles away expressly to photograph them. And I think it's it's pride again. It's also the country has a really unique relationship with photographers. But yeah, I mean, without exception, these guys looked at you and they're just totally self-possessed and unflinching in front of a camera and to the point of almost not really being aware that you're there with the camera. They're just right there in front of you and uh, they don't shy away from it. Was it fairly straightforward? I mean, when you were taking pictures of Dan or, or you had to develop some sort of relationship with before or did you had any issues during the process of this photography because those men you know they're not models or, or you know that that's not uh, perhaps they're not used to it so i'm just curious about that side the behind the scenes yeah i mean each trip each trip sort of had its own its own unique set of challenges the, the first trip was under the government the second trip was under was after the, the taliban had taken power um so it was sort of different dynamics at play with each one but the thing that sort of made it easier or accessible each time is like afghans have a huge culture in hospitality so if you come to them and you're kind of ingratiated to them and there's that understanding of respect they're very accommodating and if you're going there especially in their law in their culture if you're going to them alone and you're um, you know alone and un unarmed they really can be nothing but welcoming to you. So that, that helped in both trips. And then, you know, the, we said these guys, they're not models. They're definitely not models. But they also, they don't have the comprehension of like a camera and social media. And Some news. of them could be, by the way. Some of them could be models. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're a ruggedly handsome, a ruggedly handsome people. And, and they have real confidence in the camera because they're not really, they're not really aware of it. And they're just so self-possessed so that that carried across both trips and it was just it was very easy to on one hand if you're photographing these guys and they're unaware they're in day-to-day -day life like they're very easy and self-possessed and then if you're interacting with these guys and and talking to them they're just um they're totally they're totally open to you and they don't have any insecurities 
Robert, let's talk about fashion. Some of the of some of the pieces that are very traditional for uh, menswear in Afghanistan. For example, sorry if I'm saying the name wrong, Parahan or Tumban, right? Tell us more about those pieces because basically they have some sort of a, a uniform. But you mentioned in the book that is, this is more cultural; it's not necessarily enforced. But that's that's kind of the tradition as well, right? Which is, I mean, that's what makes you know objectively from a fashion perspective. That's one of the things that makes Afghanistan such an interesting place to do a study. Um, I can't really think of another country on earth where the conformity to cultural dress is like 99.9% there. Um, and this is this has been under the government and also now under the Taliban. It's the, almost the exact same amount of conformity. So they have the Prano Tamban. Um, some people also call this a Shawar Kamiz, but it's a little bit of a misnomer because the Shawar Kamiz is a little bit more from, from Pakistan. And the interesting thing about the, the Prano Tamban, it's like, You know, in the West, we think of it as like a kind of oversized pajama top um, with side slit pockets. And then this really blousey kind of flowy, generally short cropped pant. Every man in Afghanistan wears a version of this. And the different regions and the different subcultures and tribes within Afghanistan all have their own take on this. They have colors, different silhouettes, different textures, different levels of embroidery. And no matter where you go in the country, people are kind of expressing that in a different way. It's also incredibly pure because I would say about 70 or 80% of the clothing that's worn there is made locally by tailors, which again is something like you won't see. I can't think of another country on earth where that much of the clothing is, is tailored. You know, you'd have to go back in time to find that. We are back with the curator. Time now to head to Georgia. Sally Howard, she visited the Mother of Georgia statue to see what this monument to femininity says about the role of women in the post-Soviet state. At the silver feet of the Mother of Kartli, a 20-metre aluminium statue that dominates the skyline of Tbilisi from Solalaki Hill, a flower seller curses tourists who attempt to photograph the spring hyacinths that decorate her stall. Nearby, a busker, a Ukrainian refugee, thrums out the strains of Hug Me or Obime, a Ukrainian ballad from 2013 that was a hit across the Caucasus back then and which has since become one of the soundtracks of the Ukraine war. Someday, war will be over, it enjoins the listener, lyrically, Someday spring will come, if you hug me, if you hug me. Kartli Deda, or the mother of Georgia, is a symbol of nationhood and womanhood in this country at the crossroads of Asia and Europe, a fertile land buffeted by centuries of invaders that has been subsumed into tens of empires, most recently the Soviet Union. In flowing dress, Kartli holds aloft a sword in her right hand and a bowl of wine, the traditional social lubricant in this country where viticulture has thrived for 8,000 years, in her left hand. Load a QR code from her base and Kartli Deda speaks to you from her rarefied perch. Welcome, my dear guests. A mother of Kartli, symbol of the Georgian national character. Yes, you aren't imagining. In one hand, I'm holding a sword against enemies. And in the other, 
I have a bowl of wine for friends. Once a tourist asked me if my hands ever got tired, I answered sincerely, yes, my hands are always tired, especially the right one. Tamar Bulbalashivi, a Georgian feminist and tour guide, preferred the original Mother Georgia statue from 1958, although she predated Tamar's three decades on this contended soil. The first statue was wooden and she wore a headscarf and looked more like a traditional Georgian peasant, 31-year-old Tamar tells me. The aluminium encased Mother Mark II arrived in 1966 when Georgian sculptor El Guja Amashukeli was commissioned by the Soviet powers to refresh this city symbol. The result, a statue the sculptor enigmatically named Capital, holds her head higher than the bowed-headed original, and she wears a regal crown, although her breasts are similarly bullet-like and her agriculturalist arms are just as muscular. Just like the city she presides over, therefore, the mother of Georgia is the terrain for a proxy war between Georgians who yearn for self-rule and the powers that have always laid claim to her. Earlier this month, protests broke out on the streets she surveys, on the broad arterial thoroughfare Rustavelli Avenue and outside its neoclassical parliament building. The protests were against the enactment of a law that tries to suppress foreign businesses and charities who wish to operate in Georgia. Modelled on a similar law in Putin's Russia, the Foreign Agents Law was introduced by Arakli Garabishvili, the Georgian Prime Minister and head of the right-wing Georgian Dream Party. He's widely seen as a puppet of Vladimir Putin, and he's believed to be in league with the Russian strongman's ambitions of keeping countries of the former Soviet bloc in Russia's orbit. Tamar attended the protests on a sunny March day, and it was full of families and placard-toting young Tbilisians. This March, after three days and nights of protests, the Georgia Dream Party agreed to drop its foreign agents bill, which is good news as far as Tamar is concerned for Georgia and its women. Many of the charities offering refuge to the one in four Georgian women who experience domestic violence are multinational NGOs who would have been affected by the law, which reclass them as agents of foreign influence. The mother of Kartli presides over Tbilisi at a feminist crossroads. The young Georgians who have migrated from their nation in recent decades have struggled to reimport liberal attitudes towards women's roles into a country where women perform 13 times more housework than men. Liberal TV journalist Kaka Kintsurashvili recently caused a national storm with his campaign Men Cares, which depicted the former actor as a smiling hands-on dad looking after his infant son. For all of the images of muscular womanhood proposed by the mother of Kartli, she still holds, Tamar notes, that bowl of wine in one of those heavy hands. When Georgians raise our wine and make a toast these troubled days, we make a toast of victory and to peace, Tamar says, as we buy a red wine ice cream from a street vendor a few steps from the statue. It's a favoured tourist snack in this wine-mad nation. I hope one day, Tamar continues, we will toast to a more modern future for Georgian women. Maybe a future in which we use our swords, but a future in which we are doing much more than just smiling and serving the wine. 
and we're back with the curator and every week we have a lovely recipe for you from our show Food Neighborhoods. This time from chef and author Elif Oskan. She cooked a Turkish egg salad following a simple recipe passed down by her mother. Hello, my name is Elif Oskan. I'm a Turkish girl, grew up in Switzerland, Zurich, and I have a restaurant called Gu, where I cook Turkish food. Yes, I just published my cookbook, it's called Cuisine, and there is one dish which isn't in the book because it's so simple and I would love to tell you more about. It's my favorite dish from my mom, it's egg salad. So, Turkish egg salad, very simple. You take the same amount of hard-boiled eggs and herbs. Take fresh scallions like green onions, take um, any kind of herb you want, parsley, take something sour, take mint, mint is like great with eggs, and then you just season it a little bit with pepper, salt, maybe you have some uh, chili flakes to give it a little bit more pep, and then very important, lots of lemon juice, not so much olive oil, mix it carefully, and then eat it with flatbread. I wish you a lot of fun. Enjoy. Thank you so much. And finally on the show, Material Bank has revolutionized the selection and specification of timber, tile, brick and steel for architecture projects. We talked to Managing Director Philippe Brocart about the U.S. operations plans for a European launch this spring. Material Bank started with this idea that we can bring value, we can bring efficiency to architect and designer. So now in the US, we have uh, more than 500 brands, 500 manufacturers, and we have more than 100,000 architects and designers using everyday Material Bank. I'm working on a project, I'm working for a hotel project. I need samples from, I don't know, 20 different brands. I go on the platform, I discover the brands and, and, and the product, I make an order, and if I order today, I receive my samples in the single box next morning. And it's very sustainable because instead of sending uh, 15 different packages from 15 different brands, I receive one box with all my samples. So it's really changed the way the industry uh, works in the US. On one side, you can see uh, the value for the architect. It's mainly about efficiency. It's mainly about discovering brands. And it's really about having the samples of materials physically when they go to the client to introduce the project. And then for the brands, we discover after that, that we can also bring a big value. The first point is that if you want to order samples, from Material Bank, as an architect, we have a stringent vetting process. It means that if you want to order, it's free for you, but we want to be sure that we are talking with real architects and we are talking with people with projects. It's a very stringent process because at the end of the day, you will see, we want to give highly qualified leads to manufacturers. So for manufacturers, the idea is that they will receive a very highly qualified lead linked to a project. For brands, it's really about generating leads, generating potential business opportunities. So instead of having the sales rep for manufacturers knocking at the door of the architect, oh, this is my new collection, this is my new product, every day they receive qualified leads and they know exactly 
why the architect is interested by the project. So in Europe, architect will have the opportunity to order samples until 7.30 p.m. And in major uh, cities, they will receive all the samples next morning before 12. First, we want to have brands that are generating creative, innovative products. We want also brands that are able to work with architect, which is not the case for everyone. I think, you know, that's the DNA of Mattel Bank is that you discover new product on the digital platform, but you receive the real materials. Even in, in B2B, in big projects, now the clients, they want to see the, the, the material. They want to see the samples. Otherwise, it's like you and me. Okay, we are talking about a nice wood flooring, but if you don't touch it, you don't have the feeling that uh, you will like it and that's the one you want to have. So it's uh, nothing will replace the, the real materials. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.